season one of Written in Stone, the 1990s is supported by Tension Climbing, wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com. Mastery over success. Written in Stone is co-created by Power Company Climbing. Products, training plans, and education to help you become a better climber. PowerCompanyClimbing.com. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, for 20% off of almost everything. Learn. Grow. Excel. After reaching critical mass on Jibay Tribu's infamous 14A, Lynn Hill established herself as a catalyst in the nuclear reaction of the 90s climbing scene. And in part because of Lynn's impact, the sport was exploding, firing into the future on a straight shot trajectory. New grades were being established one after the other, 14A, 14B, 14C, 14D, and repeated almost as quickly. Bouldering was taking off as a sport all its own, and indoors, the comp scene was just heating up. But as Lynn looked ahead, trying to choose a direction in which to take her next step, none of those bright, shiny new paths really, well, inspired her. She was bored with comp climbing. She'd broken new ground in sport climbing. She'd done her fair share of hard and heady boulders. Lynn wanted to keep moving herself and her sport forward, no doubt. She just wasn't convinced that forward meant only one direction. And so, with a foot in all of its new, exciting, fast-progressing worlds, climbing's premier female athlete turned on her heel 180 degrees and marched straight back to her roots. I'm Chris Hampton. You're listening to Written in Stone, climbing's most important ascents. This is season one, the 1990s. In the mid-1970s, before the gunks, before the Great Debate, and long before Simai, Lynn learned the ropes in Joshua Tree. Between the athleticism she'd honed through gymnastics, her eagerness to excel in the sport, and perhaps most important, her ability to keep her cool, Lynn wasn't just a tag-along. She was a vital, secret weapon for her mentor Chuck and his friends, nearly always able to make it to the top. She didn't stay secret for long. 
another group of Joshua Tree regulars noticed, and after watching Lynn take a 30-foot whipper gunning for the chains of a notoriously stiff Joshua Tree root, one of their core members approached her about climbing with them sometime. This group of guys had become known as the Hotties by Lynn and her crew, and that's H-A-U-G-H, Hotties, mostly because of their smug attitude about their climbing abilities. Though, anyone would have begrudgingly admitted that they were the it crowd of the crag in those days. Maybe that's why, for all their airs, she took them up on the invite. The Hotties brought Lynn into the fold and wasted little time getting her to Yosemite, where they were known by another, different nickname, the Stone Masters. The name said it all, Lynn wrote later in her memoir. Mastery over the stone and mastery over being stoned. The group was one of now household names, Long, Backer, Kalk, Bridwell, Yablonsky. The list goes on. She dryly noted in later writing that one of the requirements to being a stonemaster was being male. But she was inspired by women like Bev Johnson, who'd made a 10-day solo ascent of El Cap's dihedral wall, making it clear that women belonged as well. Lynn's goal was to climb as much and as hard as possible. And within the group, she had an endless supply of partners experienced enough or crazy enough or both to push her limits in the sprawling granite playground of Yosemite. And she didn't waste it. She climbed everything, in every style, with everyone she could. And as she did, she rocketed to the top of the Yosemite climbing scene. And because Yosemite was the center of the climbing universe, Lynn Hill was, in the minds of many, quickly becoming the best climber anywhere. When climbing competitions started to take off in the early 90s, and Lynn realized that she could win them, she was all in. She moved to France in 91 to train and compete on the circuit, as well as to be closer to the limestone sport climbing she'd fallen in love with. I didn't start out training on artificial walls, and that's not really ever something that I wanted to do as a full-time profession. It doesn't represent the values of climbing in a complete way, she said. Competition was a good excuse to make playing on the rock a full-time profession. And by 1992, she'd won over 30 international titles, including five Arco Rockmaster competitions. She'd paid her dues. She'd secured her sponsors. She'd gotten her name out there. And it was time for other things. Not new things, necessarily. No, she was looking for old, made new. A way to push the style of climbing she first loved into the future. She missed trad climbing. She missed the big walls. She missed those long days in Yosemite. Hell, maybe she even missed the Stonemasters. She just needed a worthy objective. Looking to brainstorm, she called up her old friend, John Long. He didn't disappoint. Lenny, he said excited. What about free climbing the nose? It was an audacious idea. The nose is the most prominent line on the most prominent feature in all of Yosemite Valley. 
The first ascent took a collective 45 days over the course of several months, finally finishing in the early winter months of 1958. And of the eight climbers involved, only the ringleader of this circus, Warren Harding, was there for the duration. Shortly thereafter, Harding's nemesis, Royal Robbins, led a second ascent team who upped the ante and sent in one continuous push. And it still took them a week. And John Long himself, along with familiar faces Jim Bridwell and Billy Westbay, were the first to get up the route in a single day. But that didn't happen until 1975. And it accrued few sins between or after, and not for lack of attention or attempts. The nose was just plain hard. And that was its aid climbing reputation. But nearly every climber who'd stood in aiders and slowly inched their way up the massive wall had wondered what it might possibly take to free climb the route. And the best and most ambitious had even made attempts. But all were stopped cold. It just might be impossible. Can you imagine? The hard men of old and not so old would whisper around the fires of Camp 4. But no one really could, of course. Long's idea was, according to everyone at the time, insane. It would require the craft of a seasoned wall climber and the fitness, tactics, and ingenuity of the world's premier sport climbers. The patience and experience of an old-timer, the energy of a young gun. That person would need a deep appreciation and knowledge of the past, as well as the vision and optimism to see further to an as-yet unimaginable future. And, according to Long, it wouldn't hurt to have really small fingers. John, Lynn said, see you in the valley. We'll be right back. I get it. You want to climb harder and better. Yeah, me too. I mean, damn near everybody wants to. Well, our friends at Tension Climbing understand this desire, and they know how to help you get there. They've combined their near decade of experience building the best training tools on the market with their passion for climbing and their pursuit of mastery over success to create the best training board on the planet. Four different sizes to fit your space, two different layouts, mirrored and sprayed, that you can switch between, and most importantly, it was all done with purpose. These aren't just holds scattered randomly on a board. Those days are history. This is intentionally designed to help you become a better climber faster. Mastery over success. Though, I suspect you're going to have plenty of both. September 16th, 1993. The valley's silent and blanketed in the darkness of a new moon, though morning is fast approaching. 
over 2,000 feet above the floor, a single pinprick of light suddenly, quietly, clicks on. Lynn Hill delicately shifts in her sleeping bag at Camp 5 and pulls the headlamp over a mop of sandy hair, styled wildly by two days' worth of climbing, chalk, dust, and sweat. She rubs her eyes, then turns, craning her neck until the dim beam of light comes to rest just above her. A bold, blocky column of granite looms in a precise dihedral, changing corners. It should be an intimidating sight, and it is, no doubt. But Lynn's been here before. After her conversation with Long, she wasted no time in preparing to give the objective her best shot. Coming off of a successful competitive season, she built upon her existing fitness with a grueling training regimen aimed at maximizing endurance, both physical and mental. And in 1992, Lynn joined friend and renowned speed climber Hans Florine on one of his many nose-in-a-day speed missions to scope out the route and assess the options and challenges for herself. The pair sprinted up the wall in eight hours, and for all but two pitches, Lynn was confident a free climb would be fairly straightforward. The great roof and changing corners, though, would require ingenuity of a revolutionary degree. And upon returning in 1993, she and British climber Simon Naden gave it a strong ground-up attempt. And the climbing went with relative ease until the great roof. But the abrupt, clean overhang seemed to say, this, this is the end of the line. Nevertheless, they took turns throwing themselves at the pitch, inching closer and closer to success. Lynn locked her fingers into thin, shallow cracks, smeared her feet on glassy, featureless granite below, and shuffled her way up and to the right. She fiddled with beta, checked out holds, and tucked her body as far into the corner as she possibly could. She gave it another shot, nearly sent, but fell at that last crucial moment. But on her third try, she did it. Simon had no such luck, but gamely pulled past the pitch and continued upward, eager to see if Lynn could pull off the unimaginable. When they arrived at changing corners, though, morale quickly fell. The smooth geometry of the slick dihedrals and sharp arets almost certainly held a secret. Lynn was sure there was a devious sequence that would allow passage, but the 220 million year old walls weren't ready to give it up just yet. Plenty of people would have been content with the victory of freeing the Great Roof alone. Lynn, however, spent the next few weeks stewing over the experience. She had to return. This time, she was accompanied by Brooke Sandall, who had put considerable work into trying to free the line himself. 
Back in 1991, he had replaced many of the aging anchors and figured out the final, steep, wandering pitch through Warren Harding's bolt ladder. They started up the wall on September 14, 1993. Again, the going was smooth until arriving at the Great Roof on the night of the 15th. And on her first attempt of the day, she slipped and fell, maybe a little too amped up. But that is rock climbing. And she knew what to do. Years later, Tommy Caldwell would prove that freeing the pitch wasn't dependent on finger size, but in the moment, Lynn leveraged her every advantage. She wedged her nails into that impossibly thin finger crack, feet smeared flat on the wall below, neck craned to the side to accommodate the rock ceiling above, and refused to let go. Moments later, she was at the next belay, an electric thrill running through her. Changing corners still loomed ahead, but Lynn had been planning for this since the last time she faced that slippery pitch. Unlike Todd Skinner and Alan Watts, who were outsiders bringing in their Euro hangdog tactics, Lynn was a stone master. And so days before, Lynn and Brooke had employed one of many rising new school tactics that, in the early 90s, were arguably as revolutionary as any athletic feat. They'd hiked to the top of El Capitan, fixed a rope, and rappelled down to changing corners to scope holds, try different beta, and give the pitch some working burns. Brooke focused on an alternate line he had bolted a couple of years earlier. Lynn, after trying it once and finding that the reaches were far too big for her, turned her attention back to the original shallow dihedral. On her previous attempt, an old broken-off piton had blocked a key finger lock, so she'd come prepared to remove it. And it took time, and more than a little stubbornness, but she finally found a contortionist combo that unlocked the door to her passage. A crazed sequence of cross-stemming, arm-barring, erect, pinching, pin-scar jamming in a dynamic tango that I'd never seen the likes of before or since, Brooke declared. It looked like she was bloody Houdini trying to escape from a straitjacket. It may have looked like a circus act, and it was hard as nails, but it worked. And that was all she needed it to do. In the dark, silent hours of the morning of the 16th, Lynn's headlamp catches the beginning of that final gauntlet, the only thing standing between her and her goal. For most, the pressure would be crushing. But in those pre-dawn moments, Lynn felt a sense of peace and settled confidence. The night before, curled up in her sleeping bag high on the wall, She dreamed about that pitch, and in her dream, she'd sent. Later that night, Lynn pulled over the final lip of the last 12C pitch, pumped, exhausted, and in disbelief. 
Brooks soon joined her on the summit. Congratulations flew. Her dream from the night before, that she'd sent the changing corners, it had come true. And so had her dream of freeing the nose. It goes, boys. Wait, 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 wait a minute. That's not where this story ends. Lynn Hill wasn't finished. Not even close. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. What's up, everybody? I just wanted to drop in here to say thank you. Projects like this take way too many hours to make, and it just doesn't happen without your support. So whether it's training plans, courses, or products, it's your support of Power Company Climbing, as well as our sponsors here on this show, that has given me the time and motivation to conceptualize and create things like this podcast. So as a thank you, we're offering 20% off of almost everything on our site. Finger files, clippers, apparel, proven plans, ebooks, courses, and more. For details, go to powercompanyclimbing.com stone. And then use the code stone, that's S-T-O-N-E, at checkout. Powercompanyclimbing.com. Learn. Grow. Excel. One year and five days later, by the light of a full moon, Lynn Hill was dressing her knot at the base of El Cap once again. Her friend Steve Sutton adjusted the straps on his backpack, stuffed with a day's worth of food, water, and extra chalk. He double-checked his belay device, probably with a grin. He'd forgotten it the last time they'd tried this. For a moment, they waited, anticipation palpable. They watched the time, counting down the seconds. Three, two, one. At exactly 10 p.m., Lynn started up. She breezed her way through mostly 5-10 pitches, settling into a rhythm by the time she reached sickle ledge at the top of pitch four. The comfortable curving ledge marks the start of the steepness and would normally serve as a natural break spot. This is where the climbing really began and where the southeast and southwest faces of El Capitan come together to create the standout feature of the wall, the sweeping, light-catching prow of the nose. For Lynn, this wasn't a time to rest. She gave Steve, jugging behind her, a nod and continued on her way. Soon, she was at the base of the stove legs, so named because Warren Harding on the first ascent had nailed the cracks using four enameled stove legs turned pitons that his buddy Frank Tarver had scrounged from the Berkeley dump. And in 1964, Frank Sacker deduced that the slow aid climbing of the stove legs was the main barrier to doing the nose in a day. He enlisted Jim Bridwell to go up with him to try to free the pitch, which would save considerable time. And a lot of hand jams later, they confirmed it could be done. It seemed as though all Frank had to do was simply envision something wild, and it came true, Bridwell marveled later. By 1994, though, Sacker's something wild had become an entirely different animal that even he couldn't have imagined. 
methodically hand and fist jamming through the 300 plus feet of splitter cracks, Lynn was relaxed enough for her mind to wander. She laughed, thinking about how Long had led these pitches on the first one-day ascent nearly 20 years earlier, pre-cams, and getting only one piece of gear in the entire 300-foot stretch. She glanced again at the wall looming above. The nose, free, in a day. It had occupied every waking thought, every sleeping thought for that matter, since she topped out on the first free ascent a year before. She shook one hand, then the other, then plunged it back into the crack, never stopping, never slowing down. And that's because never before had someone climbed this or any other stretch of rock with this monumental a milestone on the line. Lynn was through the stove legs and past Dolt Tower in no time at all. The tower's namesake, Bill Dolt Fuhrer, had sat in the meadow with Harding and glassed the wall, helping to find the line when it was still just a dream, and had accompanied Harding in those initial forays. Lynn wondered what he might have thought if he could see her now, flying up the route. Focused on moving quickly through a 5'9 fist crack, out of the corner of her eye she caught a glimpse of El Cap Tower and it sparked a memory of her first time up the nose, a three-day, mostly aid ascent with Mari Gingery and Dean Fidelman in 1979. She looked wistfully up towards Texas Flake, Boot Flake, and the King Swing, all icons of the route. But for her current objective, she'd opt instead to take a left across the Jardine Traverse. Ray Jardine, who pioneered this alternate route, dreamed of a moderate route up El Cap that he was already calling numero uno. And when his traverse turned out to be an impossibly difficult face, he simply shrugged, grabbed his chisel, and created a 511. He realized his error not long after and remorsefully abandoned the project altogether. However, chipped or not, the section was the key to avoiding the unfreeable king swing pendulum above. I wonder what it was like before it was chipped, Lynn thought, quickly picking her way across to join the grape race, a variation pioneered years earlier by big wall legend Charlie Porter and one of her heroes, Bev Johnson. But with no way to know and the most difficult climbing ahead, she put it out of her mind, taking a moment on the small perch of Eagle Ledge, the target of the king swing for aid climbers, to rechalk and take a breath before launching into yet another 510 pitch. Years earlier, aid climbers had bolted a traverse that shaved a little time off of Harding's original method. Lynn would free climb across this traverse at 512, and it would later bear her name. With no haul bags to get snagged on the many features, she moved quickly up and left across the gray bands and found herself at Camp 4, the top of the 17th pitch, at 8.30 a.m. She was over halfway up the wall in just over 10 hours, but the beginning of the hard climbing loomed just above her, the great roof. But that could wait a few minutes. Camp 4 may be a poor bivy spot, but after climbing all night, it made a perfectly good power nap spot. she awoke to the first rays of light peeking around the corner, signaling that it was time to get moving again. Her first nose in a day attempt had been thwarted right here, out of chalk, nearly out of water, and the sun baking the great roof's already glassy features into some sort of sweaty slip and slide. 
this time, she thought, tightening her shoes and giving Steve a nod. No, now the odds were in her favor. She'd get her chance in the cool of morning. And she wanted to make it count. Once again, she started up, jamming her fingers into that familiar old seam and pressing her feet flat against the granite. At the crux, a decision. She had enough juice to do the complex, strenuous moves to pull the corner or to place a crucial piece of gear. But not both. And in less time than it takes to say Passat, which, to be fair, can take a while depending on who's yelling it, Lynn steeled herself and made her choice. Boldly running out one of the most elusive pitches in the world, she found herself at the next belay, relieved with adrenaline pumping and the first tentative gleams of real hope shining in her eyes. But it wasn't over. She was racing the clock, and now the sun. She zoomed up Pancake Flake, laying back its thin edge with speed and precision. She passed a couple of 511 pitches in Camp 5, picking up momentum as she went. At noon, she reached the three-foot-by-three-foot ledge known as the glowering spot. As she started up the pitch, things nearly ground to a halt. While placing a crucial wired stopper below the crux of the pitch, Lynn fumbled it and watched it fall past the ledge she would most certainly hit if she fell now. Coincidentally, it was here, on the first ascent of the wall, that a four-pound piton made from I-beam steel had popped and hit Warren Harding in the head. And when Wayne Mary and George Whitmore arrived at the stance, they found Harding there, arms crossed, glowering over the incident. The energy it would have cost Lynn to attempt a sketchy down climb and replace the pro seemed just as risky as pressing onward. So she once again found herself in no-fall territory, finding a slot on the fly in which to place her final two pieces of protection and forcing yet another run out to the belay. By the time she stood at Camp 6, beneath the changing corners, she'd been climbing for 15 hours and had already been mentally taxed to the extreme. With the wall now fully in the sun and facing a pitch that relied heavily on friction and with limited energy stores, Lynn gambled. She and Steve settled onto Camp Six's ledge for a well-earned five and a half hour rest, waiting for Shade to overtake them once more. Dozing off and on, the anxiety of her goal keeping her restless, she was ready to begin again as soon as the sun set. But the ancient granite was still holding on to the heat. One foot slip, and then another, brought her first falls of the day. On the next attempt, a sequence error left her hanging on the rope again. She felt her stomach clench with doubt. She lowered, took a breath, and put her game face on, building the pressure. She stepped onto the wall and immediately slipped off of the difficult opening moves. But the pressure fell away as well, and she was able to commit fully to what was right in front of her. I've made it this far, she thought. No way I'm failing now. 
and then, in the same style as a year before, with full trust in herself and her intent, she smeared, stemmed, palmed, and pinched her way into the spaces between the smooth corners and arets, finding exactly the positions in the well-choreographed dance that only she knew, that only she could do. And suddenly, it was behind her. But with 400 feet to go, and only a few hours remaining in the day, there was no time to waste. She stemmed and jammed through mostly sub-511 terrain in a maze of dihedrals, steadily advancing with unwavering resolve. And just as the light was disappearing from the valley, she arrived at the base of that final overhanging pitch. She knew it was here that one of the biggest dramas in climbing history had played out. On the first ascent, Warren Harding had hammered and hand-drilled for 15 straight hours through the night, 28 bolts, desperate after so many days on the wall and enduring a terrible storm to just get to the damned top. And decades later, with the same dogged determination displayed by Harding, but with world-class climbing skills born of a new era, Lynn Hill stood in that same spot. The final roof jutted out above her, its form blocking the stars. Even in the dark, she could feel the exposure. She felt her breath catch with the thrill. And for one moment, she allowed herself to look back instead of forward. That entire sea of stone, all in just one day. She checked her watch, almost 9 p.m. She turned her attention back to the granite before her and with encouragement from Steve used every last bit of strength she had to fight the fatigue on the overhanging 12C guarding the summit. One hand, then the other, grabbed the final hold. Her body trembled both from the fatigue and the excitement of achieving the impossible. Her right foot moved high onto the shelf and she gently rocked her weight onto it, scrambling up the final few feet of slabby granite. And on September 20th, 1994, 23 hours after she first stepped onto the wall, Lynn Hill stood there on top of a dream, looking down at the valley that had helped shape her. She knew what she had done was special, historic, monumental. What she didn't know is that at that moment, she was altering and shaping the dreams of generations of climbers to come, both men and women. Because now, we all know that it goes. One, two. Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Emily Holland and Riley Rush, who did a lot of the research and writing on this episode. For Plugtone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in your show notes, you'll find all the things you expect, and probably some you don't, including a film directed and produced by Lynn Hill herself about her two earth-shattering ascents of the nose. And look, this show is 100% rooted in the facts, but like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. 
And seriously, if you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review. The algorithm loves it, which means more people find it, which means sponsors will love it, which means we can make a season two. And together, we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents, one decade at a time. Donors, welcome back. If you're new here, if you just accidentally listened all the way through the credits and this is the first time you're hearing me talk on the other end, welcome to the Secret Stoners Club. You now may have to go back and listen to the other Secret Stoners Club, but just know we actually do have a real secret club. We don't have a clubhouse, but we have a club. If I mean, if everybody wants to come over to the gym, we'll have a clubhouse there, but Otherwise, we just have a club over on Patreon. It's free to join, so go check out what we've got in there. It's patreon.com slash secretstonersclub. Big shout out to our brand new legend patron, Riley Lundquist. Riley, I appreciate you. Also, shout out to another one of our legends, Jason Tutolman. I think I said that right, Jason. I'm doing my best here. Because Jason is the person who recognized in the last episode, the French versus the British, that the line back in the UK after the whirlwind French takeover, Moffat set his sights on ethering his own home turf. Referenced a Nas and Jay-Z battle from way back in 2001. Nas's album Stillmatic, Jay-Z's Blueprint. The songs that they were battling each other, at least the two referenced here, were Takeover and ether. I'm not going to say who I think won, but it was Jay-Z. I know that's unpopular for those of you who are hip-hop fans, but don't at me. All right. Message from Emily to all of you. She said, everybody better be leaving ratings and reviews, especially in Apple. She didn't actually say that, but she did want me to ask everyone to leave a review. And if you're on an iPhone, even if you're using another podcast app, it would help us a lot if you went into your Apple podcast, left us a rating and a review in there. Um, the algorithm loves it. So it would be awesome to get this out to more people, get even more listens. We just hit 60,000 listens. That's incredible for a two and a half month old podcast. So thank you guys for sharing it like you have been. And thank you in advance for leaving those reviews. Uh, I was just in the Patreon and the 80s are winning. They're winning big now, 52% to 40%. But that's only 42 votes in there and there are 70 of you in there. So some people aren't voting. So right after you leave that review that Emily is forcing you to leave, uh, go in and scroll down in the Patreon and vote for whether you want the 80s or the 2000s. I think those are only two choices now. The 70s have like 7%. They're not going to win. Um, the, the people who want the 70s can't even use uh, an iPhone or a smartphone or Patreon. Um, actually, if that's one of you, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. Um, you know what I mean. All right, next week. Next week, we have four conversations 
um, because I had a couple of people that were lined up and then over the holidays, things got all messed up and they ended up not working out. So I panicked and reached out to more people and they weren't answering. So I reached out to more people and then uh, everybody kind of was like, yeah, let's do this. I would love it. So we've got four great conversations next week, starting on next Monday with one of my favorite people in the entire climbing industry. Uh, and she was one of my favorites from almost the moment that I met her, Bobby Benzman, coming up Monday. All right. See you guys then. <laughs>